All right, shall we get started, everyone? It is about that time. If you didn't get enough to eat, there's plenty, so afterwards, help yourself. You guys didn't eat enough salad. Your moms would be very disappointed. You need to eat more greens. <clears throat> I know. Usually you guys are good with salad, but today it was delicious. Um, <clears throat> so welcome to our weekly Ruth's Chris Bible study. A couple of housekeeping notes just to uh, let me make sure I'm covering everything. One, we do this every week. It's the first time. We are so glad you're here. Uh, I've heard this more than once, so I'm going to mention it so you can be sure to emphasize it when you're telling people about this. This is not a men's Bible study. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> For some reason, some people think this is a men's Bible study. Uh, it is not. <clears throat> so clearly, those of you who are ladies know this. <laughs> so as you're letting people know about it, let them know. It's, uh, it's open literally to everyone. We've had people bring their babies before. <laughs> as long as baby's quiet, we're fine. Um, but no, it's, it's literally, it's open for everybody in the area uh, that wants to come and study Scripture and meet people and connect. And so just continue to get the word out, let people know about it. I always tell people it's the best kept lunch secret in Charlotte. Uh, <clears throat> we, the food is free. Ruth's provides it generously. But we want to honor their generosity, particularly the workers who prepare it. And so that's what the donation tips are for, is they go straight to the people in the back that bring the food out. I don't get any of that. Ruth's Chris doesn't get any of that. It goes to them. So I always tell people, come enjoy a free lunch and leave a nice tip. That's a way to think of it. Um, we are closing in on finishing the book of Joshua, which we've been in since January. We are going to have, we're going to go through the end of June. After June, we're going to break for July. So we will not be meeting in July. We'll kick back up August 6th, I believe. And <clears throat> we'll either be in the book of Judges or we may do the book of Ruth and then do Judges because they take place at the same time chronologically. Uh, I haven't decided yet. I'm going to do some prep work and thoughtfully, prayerfully consider which we want to go through. Um, great reminder, silence your phones right now. <laughs> it helps everybody and um, keeps us from being distracted. Now, what are you going to do in July when you're not coming here? Well, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to go to DiscipleDojo.org slash podcast and you're going to listen to the podcasts that you've missed over the years because we've recorded all the way back to Genesis. So every week we got this recorded. So you've missed some weeks. You've got all July to catch up and they're in 30 minute segments. So your daily commute, your jog on the treadmill while you're walking the dog, whatever. You've got time, you can catch up and um, take advantage of that because the resources are there and we record this intentionally and put it uh, freely available online for anybody in the world. So if you don't know what a podcast is, just click right on the website. You don't even have to download anything. You can play it right on the website. If you do know what a podcast is, find it on your favorite podcast application. Let's get into Joshua. Um, oh, one more thing. The June 11th, or 9th, 11th. Which one's a Tuesday? I don't have my calendar. The 11th. <clears throat> I'll be out of town. I'll be on a training trip that week. Um, so someone will fill in. I'll let you know who once I get word back. But uh, So we will meet. 
just, I won't be here. Okay, Joshua. Chapter, last week we were in chapter 18 and 19. Dividing up the lands, the land, the remaining land among the seven tribes. Now, if you do your math, there's one tribe left that has not gotten its land. And that is the tribe of Levi. Uh, We looked at, back in Genesis... One of the blessings, and I use that in quotes because it was actually more of a curse, that Jacob gave his two very violent sons, Simeon and Levi, was that they would not have their land. They would be scattered throughout the peoples of Israel. It was very cryptic in Genesis because it was a prophecy. It was a speaking of a, a, a... It was like a proto-statement of just a general trajectory of their future, that they would be scattered among their brothers. So we saw last week how when the divvying up the land, Simeon didn't really get its own territory. It just got cities within Judah. Well, Levi, as we've read through, and if you remember, and if you don't, you can go back on the podcast and check it out. Levi actually redeemed themselves at the incident of the golden calf. The Levites, because of their devotion to God in the face of idolatry, God said, okay, I'm going to actually... I'm, the, the, the promise is still going to hold that they're not, they'll be scattered among the tribes, but God's going to redeem that scattering for His purposes. And so He declared that the Levites would not get any land, but that they would receive their inheritance as His servants in His service. And so that's what we have left in Joshua is once all the tribes have received their mandate for their lands. Now remember, giving the land is something that God does. But taking that land and occupying it is something that Israel has to do. We talked about that last week. There's the duality. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. And they go hand in hand, and Joshua doesn't try to iron it out. It just lets it both stand, as we'll see at the end of today's session. So they've gotten their mandate for the land. And God's even promised, go, take it. I'll be with you. And if you are faithful to me, it's yours. That's the contingency. If you're faithful to God... Remember, he's the great suzerain. What does a suzerain do? A suzerain protects and fights for his vassal. Israel is his vassal. So if, God, if Israel is faithful to God, God will be the faithful suzerain and will drive out their enemies before them. So the question always hinges in the Old Testament, is Israel going to be faithful to God? If they're just faithful to God, he will work everything out. But what we see from the incident of the golden calf onward is Israel has always struggled as a whole, to be faithful to God. It's part of the problem of the entire Old Testament. Every prophet almost that's going to be sent is going to be sent because of that thing. Israel being unfaithful to God. And therefore the promise is not being realized. So, <clears throat> that's the situation as God's given the land. And now there's, the, before everything's kind of settled and Joshua's wrapped up, God has to Joshua has to enact some provisions that Moses had charged him for, to enact before he died. One of the provisions was these things called cities of refuge that we're going to see. The second provision was the actual Levite town sprinkled throughout all the tribes. And that's what these two chapters are about. Because now we're moving to, this is how we're moving from taking the land to life in the land. And life in the land is going to be different than life in the wilderness. Life in the wilderness, everybody was camped around the the tabernacle in their tribal units, close together, 
it was just a different time in Israel's history where they were all right there. So it was pretty easy to have centralized government because it was God. He was literally centralized government. Like right in the middle of Israel's donut-shaped camp, he was right there. Well, now that they're in the land, that's no longer the case. They are a tribal confederacy. And so there are going to be questions of legality. There are going to be questions of judgment. There are going to be questions of just everyday life that gets messy where you're not able to just go to the center of the camp and ask the Levites there. Right? That's how you were able to do it in the wilderness. You just go to the center of the camp. Well, now you're spread out over an area the size roughly of New Jersey. So what do you do if you live up north or if you live down south? Or if you, and there starts to be tensions or there starts to be unresolved conflicts. One of the biggest concerns that God had, and this is something that if you've listened to, if you've been with us in person or you've followed along on the podcast, You've noted from all the way back in Genesis, one thing that God is, is vehemently against is the shedding of innocent blood. Like, God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Over and over and over and over we see this. Now that poses problems when we come to passages where it's like, okay, well it seems like God is advocating for you know, taking out whole populations. Wouldn't that imply shedding of innocent blood? And that's when we have to, what we've talked about in here before, let God be God and say, well, God, we know how much you hate the shedding of innocent blood, so we're just going to trust you that whatever blood gets shed is not innocent in your eyes, and if it is, that you're going to redeem the situation and take care of it. And we've talked about how throughout Joshua, we, we account for some of that with hyperbolic language and how some of the accounts of wiping out everything that breathes and all of that, not even in Joshua were they considered literal statements. It was always uh, figurative language. Uh, just meant overwhelming defeat of enemies. But regardless, there's a, there's a principle, and it's stated over and over throughout Torah. The last time it was heard from Moses, I think it was around Deuteronomy 21, where it talked about shed, innocent blood that shed defiles the land. And it actually says pollutes the land, defiles the land. That's one of the reasons that the Canaanites, Israel's driving out the Canaanites, which is what they've been doing this entire book, is because the Canaanites excelled at the shedding of innocent blood. Starting with child sacrifice. You can't get more shedding of innocent blood than child sacrifice to the gods so that your crops will grow or so that your family will be good or just because you don't want them. And that was one of the hallmarks of Canaanite uh, religious practice. But also just in general, wanton violence and oppression of uh, the, the, the weaker on part of the stronger. So God really has a thing against the shedding of innocent blood. And the question arose at the end of the book of Numbers, and Moses addressed this, Numbers 35, I think. Uh, yeah, Numbers chapter 35. What happens if innocent blood is shed, but it's accidental? It's not intentional. And what Moses had, and God through Moses had mandated was, okay, you got a problem. Innocent blood has been shed. The land is defiled. You can't just say, I accidentally killed somebody, my bad. Like, innocent blood has been shed. That is a serious offense going all the way back to Genesis, all the way after the flood when God comes out, when Noah comes out of the ark, and God says, if a man sheds the blood of man, then by man will his blood be shed. In other words, if blood is shed, innocent blood is shed, then there has to be retribution. Innocent blood that did the shedding gets shed. In other words, if you murder someone, you forfeit your life. That's just the transactional nature of it. You take somebody's innocent life, you've forfeited yours. So that was the principle. Well, this is before there's a police force, right? There's no sheriff of Mayberry 
in the ancient Near East, all right? Andy's not going to come throw somebody in the jail. Um, for those of you younger, that's a reference to the Andy Griffith show that was popular in the 50s and 60s. Anyway, there's none of that. There's no police force. There's no uh, jails. There's none of that. So how did, how did these things get resolved? Well, they got resolved by someone in the family called the Goel, the Avenger, the Redeemer. It's what the word actually means. It means Redeemer. And the Redeemer's job, or sometimes called the Avenger of Blood, the Redeemer's job was to redeem the blood that was shed by shedding the blood of the one who shed it. So somebody kills someone in your family. Well, usually it's the next closest family member. Societally, their role is to put to death the person that did it. That's how murder was to be kept in check in the ancient world. Now you can already see the problem that would arise from this. Hatfields and McCoys, right? Clan warfare. So if somebody sheds blood, well then the Redeemer comes and kills them. Well, if that family disputes it and says, no, he didn't mean to kill him, it's unfair, then they kill the Avenger of blood. Well then that next person, and then it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle. That's one of the downfalls of this system of justice. It was common in the ancient Near East. So what God does, and he did in Numbers 35, he says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to negate either principle. The shedding of blood pollutes the land and there has to be penalty. But I am a God who judges the heart as well as the actions and the intentions of the heart do matter. There is a difference between murder and killing. And it has to do with whether it was intended or not. So he gave legislation and <clears throat> said, you know, gave an example of two men in the woods cutting, chopping wood with an axe and an axe handle accidentally flies off and hits the other guy. They're working side by side and it kills the guy. He said, okay, he didn't mean to. So he's not guilty of murder. So you can't just put him to death. However, nobody at the time knows that except God. And so naturally that person's family member is going to come after him. This is what you do when somebody in your family is killed and the person comes and brings them back. I accidentally did it. Did you really accidentally do it or did you intentionally do it? The Avenger doesn't care. Their job is to redeem the blood. So what God said was, I'm going to set up and we're going to basically make cities of a refuge. There are going to be six cities throughout the land, and they're on the east, uh, west bank, and on the east bank. And they're going to be, you know, north, middle hill country, southern country. So that wherever you are in all of Israel, you're within a one-day journey of one of these cities of refuge. And that's what we read about in chapter 20. So that's the background of what's going on. Chapter 20. The Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to dedicate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses in Numbers 35. So that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he's to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he, has, because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. He is to stay in the city until he has stood trial before the assembly, first to determine whether it was indeed accidental or not, because there could be witnesses that come and say, no, it wasn't accidental. He told me he was going to do it two weeks before. Right? So there was a trial. There were judges. There was witnesses called. All of that. <clears throat> and then after that, the person stays in that city 
uh, until he stood trial for his family, and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So, the taking of innocent life had a severe penalty. But the unintentional aspect of it negated the death penalty of it. The penalty was still there. You, you can't untake a life. Even if it's accidental, even if it's negligent, you are still guilty of taking an innocent life. And there are consequences. So, are you forgiven in God's eyes? Sure. Are you considered a murderer? Nope. Are there consequences and you have to stay, live in this city? Yes. There are consequences. The the release of the person happened at the death of the high priest. Only the death of the high priest could completely annul and wipe clean the slate of the worst of sins, which was the taking of innocent life. And so there's, there's some people say there's extreme prophetic symbolism in that. The death of the high priest is the thing that wipes away sin and penalty of sin. Right? What does the book of Hebrews talk about Jesus being the ultimate high priest whose death atoned for all sin? You know, there's, there's the seeds of what would be high Christology, high priest Christology here. But the point is, at the time, at this point, this is a means by which there's, there's order and it doesn't devolve into the Wild West. And God's putting limits on His justice or how justice is carried out. Notice the avenger of blood, his ju- it's assumed His job is to pursue the person, track them down, and kill them. That may not sit well with us, but that's because we have a society with jails and police and detectives and forensics and all of this stuff that they didn't have. So we have to give some leeway. We're on a different side of the cultural bridge. But the concept was the same. You shed innocent blood, your blood is shed. And so that's what these cities of refuge uphold. They hold that balance between punishing the guilty, but not over-punishing somebody beyond what they deserve. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that was always meant to limit if those of you that were with us with Exodus, when we talked about that passage, the Lex Talionis, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth was never how it's used today in popular English. You know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you hit me, I'm going to you know, destroy you. No, that's not eye for eye. It wasn't life for eye. It was eye for eye. So in the Hebrew justice system, your punishment could not exceed the crime. That's what eye for eye, tooth for tooth was meant to instill. That's the irony of it. That's what, even preachers miss this sometimes. It's not like Jesus was like, that's a terrible system. I'm telling you, love everybody. No, people had abused that concept of eye for eye and used it as an excuse for personal vengeance. When all along, eye for eye, tooth for tooth was given by God to limit personal vengeance. And to say, somebody knocks out your eye, the most you can do is take their eye. Somebody knocks out your tooth, the most you can do is knock out their tooth. It was to limit. Punishment should fit the crime. And so Cities of Refuge is another case of God attempting that. We see it. Again, it's just one of those close readings of the Old Testament that not a lot of people do, and so they assume they know what the meaning of the Old Testament verses are, like eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and that Jesus was saying, oh, I don't believe in any punishment at all, just love everybody. And it wasn't that. Jesus was always, Jesus never negated anything in the Torah. He only pointed people back to its original intention from how they had distorted it over the centuries. 
And that's what he spoke against, the traditions of men, the hedge around the Torah that they had built, rather than the original intention, the spirit of the law, is what Jesus came and always pointed Israel back to in preparation for that new covenant that he was going to inaugurate. That's a whole other lesson for a whole other time, and we do not have time for it because we got to run through these chapters. So the cities are listed, verse 7, they set apart. Uh, these are the cities of refuge. Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. So those are the three on the west bank. On the east bank of the Jordan of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the desert on the plateau of the tribe of Reuben. Ramoth in Gilead in the tribe of Gad. And Golan in the Bashan. That's the Golan Heights today, way up there. In the tribe of Manasseh. Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them. Not just Israelites, any immigrants among them. Remember, there was one law for Israelites and for the immigrants among them. That's Check the podcast. God's very big on that. Um, any of the immigrant living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. So this is the means that God is using to mediate the wanton bloodshed in the land, which was one of the things the Canaanites got thrown out of the land for in the first place. Now, the last part of the giving of the land remains, and that is verse 20, or chapter 21. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh and Canaan and said to them, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our flocks. So as the Lord commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and the pasture lands out of their own inheritance. Did you catch that? The rest of the Israelites gave the Levites lands and cities and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. That's the principle. The Levites get God as their inheritance. So any physical sustenance has to come from the other tribes, which is how God set it up. So the tribes are having to give some of their lands, each tribe. And so they do the, the casting of lots. The first lots come out for the Kohites, clan by clan. The Levites, who were descended of Aaron, the priests, were allotted 13 towns from the tribe of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. The rest of Kohath's descendants were allotted 10 towns from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and half of Manasseh. The descendants of Gershon were allotted 13 towns from the tribes, clans of the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. Descendants of Merari, clan by clan, received 12 towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So the Israelites allotted the Levites these towns and their pasture lands as the Lord commanded through Moses. And then it'll go on and it'll list the actual towns. And I'll just read from the first one. From the tribes of Judah and Simeon, they allotted the following towns by name. These towns were assigned to the descendants of Aaron. So these are Aaron's descendants, the high priest. Remember, not all Levites were priests. Priests were all Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Some Levites were just served in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, teachers of the law, that kind of stuff. So this is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. They gave them Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron with its surrounding pasture land in the hill country of Judah. Arba was the father of Anak. This is reminding us of Hebron's history. But the fields and villages around the city they had given to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, as his possession. So the first city that's mentioned, again, comes from that area that Caleb had received. So Caleb's, uh, again, we see this pattern. Caleb the Gentile dog, it's literally what his name means, dog, 
is given priority in this list once again. It's just a, an, a, an ongoing thing of how Caleb is elevated despite his Gentile status because of his faithfulness. And so the first of these towns and, and the, you know, one of the most important is given from Caleb's possession, which is that area of Hebron. So it goes on to list other towns. We won't get read it all because it's literally just a list. It goes, verse 20, the, the Kohathite clan. So uh, Kohath was the other son, in, or head of the clans in the tribe of the Levites. And it lists theirs, and Shechem is one of their cities. And then the Gershonites, there's another clan among the Levites, and it lists theirs that they were given. And then the Merorites, they were given. Now each of these, uh, Kohathites, Gershonites, Maronites, they all had roles in the tabernacle but they didn't all serve at the same time. So it was kind of this rotating service thing. So in the meantime, when you're not serving at the tabernacle, you're in your town throughout the land. Well, what's the purpose of having Levites throughout the land? Well, one of the reasons is because when you're no longer camped around a central tabernacle, how do you learn the law of God? How do you learn Torah? How are you taught? Who handles cases of judging between, you know, is this in accordance with the law or not? So the Levites literally were sprinkled throughout all of the 12 tribes as salt and light amongst their fellow brothers and sisters. They were the ones who were to be the priests standing between the people and God, in that sense, teachers throughout all of Israel. That was God's solution. So what began as a curse in Genesis... That, that Levi will be scattered among his people. God actually redeems and turns that into a blessing. The means by which all of the people in Israel, from Dan up north to Beersheba in the south, and everywhere in between, they have access to the law of God and to the Torah and to the teaching because that was the role of the Levites. And so the Levites are God's little ambassadors of Torah throughout all of Israel. Now whether Israel listens, that's a whole other story which we'll see in the book of Judges. Usually they don't. But the point is that God is making the provisions and setting the structure in place so that it could be. And then it ends with verse 41. So the Lord gave Israel all the land He had sworn to give their forefathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side just as He had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Every promise God made to Israel about entering into the land, going all the way back to Genesis 15, the author is saying, now it has all been fulfilled. So God kept His work. Now this raises question. We know that Israel has not taken all the land. The whole book of Judges is going to start with, now, Israel did not drive out and left these people and they made war against it. So this is not a once and for all statement. This is a statement from the perspective of God's end of the bargain. He's done everything. This leaves us with, now, how is Israel going to respond to God keeping all of His promises? Because remember, the covenant at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20, was specifically conditional. Israel's, Israel's remaining in the land was never an unconditional grant. 
it was always, 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 always conditional on their obedience to the covenant. Always. What was unconditional was the promise to Abraham that through his descendants, through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. That's what's going to happen regardless. And the seed of Abraham in the land is going to bless the nations. That cannot be altered. But whether Israel is the vehicle of that promise being fulfilled or whether God uses another means or, 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 or does something even more mind-boggling, which is what the New Testament reveals, um, Israel's maintaining in the land is very conditional. And we're going to see in the next book how they continually do not live up to those conditions. And yet in His grace, God gives them time after time after time, mulligan after mulligan after mulligan. Um, and that's kind of the history of Israel, all the way through the monarchy and the prophets and, and everything. But from God's perspective, by the end of Joshua 21, He's kept His promise. What He started back in Genesis 15 and what really kicked into gear at the beginning of Exodus has now been completed and everything from God's end. The suzerain has been faithful to His covenant. Will the vassal be faithful to their end? And that's a lot of how it is today as well. You know, when we see in our lives, God is, He's done everything. He's been faithful to His promises. He asks us now, will you be faithful? Will you work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works within you? That dichotomy of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we have to uphold both of them. Somehow, in some way, whatever it does to our theology whether you're a good Methodist, a good Baptist, a good Presbyterian, you know, something in the Bible is going to poke at your theology. And that's okay. Um, but we're wrapping it up next week. The tribes, remember all this time, the tribes that were on the East Bank have been fighting alongside and have been alongside the brothers and sisters. Now it's time for them to go home. And then it's time for Joshua to ratify the covenant and wrap everything up and issue sort of a final his version of Deuteronomy, where he gives his farewell. Um, and then we're done with Joshua for the year. This is the first time it's taken us less than a year to do a book. So that's exciting. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you next week. There's plenty of seconds.